Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. University of Utah doctoral students and twin sisters, Lindsay and Lexi Kite, run a nonprofit organization called Beauty Redefined. You can find that at beautyredefined.net. It offers sticky notes supporters can paste on mirrors in restrooms and dressing rooms with messages like, Your reflection does not define your worth. Now they're taking on Sports Illustrated, urging people to paste those sticky notes on the annual swimsuit issue. The Kite sisters say that our ideas about beauty need to be redefined. In fact, they've made this their life's work, they say, and that's what their doctoral dissertations are about. We're going to be talking with Kite Sister in the first half of the program. In the second half, I revisit a conversation from a couple of years ago with This American Life host, Ira Glass. And uh, sitting in with me today is uh, one of our producers, uh, Danny Hayes. Thanks for Hi, Tom. joining us. I thought we'd get uh, perspective. Uh, I'm a middle-aged male. We get perspective of a uh, college-age uh, young woman. Uh, we ring in uh, Lindsay and Lexi Kite. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks Hi. for having us. Thank you for uh, for joining us. This has gotten a lot of publicity. I'm sure that's and, and uh, most of it good <laughs> to to yeah. uh, support your cause. I noticed uh, you've you've gotten flamed in the uh, comment section. I don't know. First oh. of all, what you, what your reaction uh, to that is? A, a lot of a lot of men who, quite frankly, are making themselves look foolish there, but it does re- <laughs> does reflect uh, some of the problem out there. Exactly. I think. You know, we're used to knowing that we should not read the comment sections of a few um, major publications around here, which we would suggest for most people. But what those comments do reinforce is that our message is needed now more than ever. Um, so we get it. It's it's fine. They are definitely distorting our message, and we're so glad to be on stations like this being able to really discuss what Beauty Redefined is all about. So uh, what's wrong with the swimsuit edition of Sports Illustrated? Well, uh, the, so the swimsuit illustrated... issue. Oh, does Lindsay want to say it? <laughs> okay, we, this I'll is go tw- for it. This is twin sister um, stuff, I think. <laughs> and we we often echo what each other is saying, so I apologize for that. I'll speak about this. Um, this is based on research I have done. Um, I did a forty-year analysis of the swimsuit issue because I was so intrigued as to how it has become what it is today in a. Under the guise of sports journalism and the number one voice of sports journalism, as they refer to themselves, um, what I found is that over this 40-year period of time, the swimsuit issue has changed from a few pages in the middle of a sports magazine um, with women in in full swimsuits in swimsuits, which is exciting for now, um, to something that in about the late 90s, early 2000s, changed into uh, more of a form of what I would call normalized pornography. These women are very much in a state of undress more often unclothed than clothed. So we see anything and everything that would connote nudity. And when that happens and when these women are posed in very pornographic poses, you can imagine. Um, But it's under the guise of sports journalism that it's time to speak up about that. This is celebrated on every media platform. We see this cover and the images inside everywhere we turn, daytime TV, the grocery store aisle. And what Lindsay and I do at Beauty Redefined is help individuals understand that what they're seeing is profit-driven and it's harmful. So we speak out about the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue and every other form of media aimed at women. How how harmful does this, because some of the comments, you know, going back to the comment section, some of the comments uh, are saying uh, that this is marketed to men, and, and it's it's men who consume this, rightly or wrongly. How does this harm women? Well, that's Go one for of it, the Lynn. issues here. Is, <laughs> this is uh, 
a magazine that is largely marketed to men because they rarely take opportunities to feature female athletes within their pages and especially not on their covers. But this is not a men's magazine. This is not Penthouse, Playboy, or Hustler. This is Sports Illustrated. Um, back in the 80s and even throughout the 90s, they featured women on their covers and within their pages, female athletes, much more often than they do now. And they've taken a real turn since the late 90s and throughout the 2000s. So we have um, images of women, as Lexi mentioned, completely nude most of the time for this month of February in the swimsuit issue. But another of the issues that has started since the late 90s is with Photoshopping, with digital manipulation, and also with um, with cosmetic surgery, really. So we see women being enhanced surgically and digitally, creating these ideals that are really enforcing unrealistic ideals on the people who are exposed to them. We become totally desensitized to these things. As you can see in the comments from a lot of the news stories that we've done, people are absolutely enraged that we would think that there is something objectionable about the swimsuit issue. People are so used to just in the last decade or so seeing this type of explicit images in the grocery store checkout stand that they think we are just um, conservative and prudish and trying to censor these images, when absolutely that is not what we're doing. We're really all about fighting against the objectification of women. When women are consistently viewed as objects and depicted as objects, they learn to view themselves as objects. And that means they treat themselves poorly. Um, we know that most women and girls in this country feel terribly about their bodies, and the word disgusted comes up more often than not within studies. And so when women see themselves um, especially in comparison to idealized images like these on the swimsuit issue that are totally normalized and celebrated on every media platform, then they learn to see themselves as subpar and then treat their bodies that way in terms of their health and fitness regimens, in terms of their eating habits. But in every other, every other aspect of their lives, they learn to view themselves as objects to be looked at primarily, and then everything else is secondary. Um, we're going to bring you Danny Hayes here with a couple of questions. Uh, just to uh, reestablish the program, if you just joined us, we're talking uh, with uh, U of U doctoral students, twin sisters, Lindsay and Lexi Kite. They run a nonprofit organization called Beauty Redefined. They say our ideas about beauty need to be redefined. That's what we're talking about. Uh, the latest um, push is to uh, put these sticky notes with uh, positive messages uh, on the uh, swimsuit issue of uh, Sports Illustrated. Uh, they also uh, provide these... Uh, messages you can stick on uh, mirrors and restrooms and dressing room. Messages like, your reflection does not define your worth. And uh, we're talking with uh, Lindsay and Lexi Kite for this part of the program. By the way, we have a couple of pairs of tickets to Chanticleer, the great uh, men's singing group. Uh, they're in Logan for performances tonight and tomorrow night. And we have a pair of tickets for tonight's performance, 730 in the Ellen Echoes Theater in downtown Logan. And a pair of tickets for tomorrow night's uh, program. Uh, you'll have to come in and pick these up. But... What you need to do is call the number I'm about to give you. Give us a comment on the air, and uh, we'd be happy to have you uh, take these pair of tickets. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. And we only have about five or six minutes left in this conversation. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, Danny, you had a couple of questions. Yeah, I'm interested into, um, um, through your research, you talk a lot about the how females feel of their value to society and how much that is affected on their image by looking at these magazines and seeing this, how much the average, the average female, how much do you think it affects their value in society? Um, research shows us that 
women and girls are greatly affected by these billions and billions of images that this generation has seen like never before. Now we know that media is just so ever-present that it's really inescapable. And what we know from research is that self-objectification, which is the basis of my PhD studies and my dissertation, um, self-objectification is this thing that happens when girls and women grow up in this objectifying world where they're... What was that? Uh, I think you cut out just briefly there. Go, go ahead. Oh, sorry about that. Um, I, I research self-objectification, and self-objectification is happening at epidemic proportions. It happens when girls and women live in this objectifying media culture. They learn to view themselves as parts that need fixing, and that's where their success and happiness will come from. But what we know about self-objectification is that when girls and women participate in this act, it becomes a state of their being, and they don't get on to anything more important. They perform worse on math tests and reading tests, reading comprehension, on spatial skills and logical reasoning, in physical performance. When you are self-conscious of your body and you're picturing yourself being looked at, it stops female progress in every way that really counts. And so we speak up about this as much as possible. And the feedback we get is incredible. The ability to help women feel empowered and understand their value a little bit more is what we're all about. We're so glad to do it. So the Beauty Redefined, and of course your, your movement is all about Beauty Redefined. Where do we redefine beauty to and, and how to get there? So Beauty Redefined is is all about um, helping people to expand this definition definition of beauty to be something that's a little bit more inclusive. Right now, our definition of beauty is extremely tall, extremely thin. It's white. It has long, flowing hair. Um, it's young. In media, we are so exposed to images all the time of idealized beauty, whether that's been surgically and digitally enhanced or not, more often than not it is. And so we grow up with our ideas of normal just being totally different from what they are when you look eye to eye with people. So we're really desensitized to idealized images. Therefore, girls and women grow up feeling subpar, feeling like they are the ones that are abnormal because they just don't look anything like so many of these images we see in media. So when we talk about redefining beauty, we talk about expanding that definition to include real life. When you look eye to eye, we want to be able to recognize and appreciate beauty in the real people that we see. So that means um, little things that show up on real women's bodies that are counted as flaws and disgusting and need to be fixed within media, those things should be and have got to be included in the real meaning of beauty as we redefine it in order for people to be able to feel okay about themselves. We're all about promoting positive body image and girls and women who feel okay about themselves, regardless of what they look like. If they feel like they're beautiful, they actually take better care of their bodies in terms of their fitness and their eating habits and everything else. Um, when women and girls feel bad about themselves and feel self-conscious and feel disgusted with their bodies, those are actually the women who are less likely to get out and exercise. They're less likely to eat good because if you feel like you're disgusting, why would you treat yourself well? So we promote positive body image through redefining beauty to include a much larger variety of shapes and sizes, of ages, of heights, of races, of every diversity you can think of. And when women learn to appreciate themselves and when men learn to appreciate real women that they can look eye to eye and see walking down the street for being beautiful, then we're getting to somewhere that's a lot more healthy for girls and women and for boys and men. I know Danny had a question, but you, you just said the key word I had out on my mind. Men, 
because you know obviously I'm a man, <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering you know where, where I fit in. What what would you have? What changes would you have uh, men make in in terms of helping women to have a better self image? Um, I think that people ask us this question a lot because men are half the population. I think that first and foremost, we start with women at Beauty Redefined because when you start with the individual and she doesn't have to get her self-esteem from a man or from you know the attention or compliments of a man, then she's getting somewhere first. And when women can start to reflect that confidence, that ability to just look outside their bodies, for just a moment, we know that reflects on the outside. That reflects to men in just that confidence and happiness. But there's lots of things men can do. If you read the comment boards, you see that there are lots of men that are just absolutely enraged that we would speak back to these objectifying images. Um, but one thing men can do is think for one moment, if they have a female that they love in their lives, if there is anybody that they care about, then they can ask that female how she feels about her body and her beauty. And the majority of the time that woman will say, things about the fact that she's disgusted about her body. We can, uh, can pretty much attest to the fact that those women that feel disgusted, when we get past the body, when we get past complimenting her solely on her physical appearance, on just saying, no, but you're beautiful, look at you, look at this and that, that keeps her minimized to her body. But we have to get past it. And if men can help women to be more and to be valued for more than that, then we're really getting somewhere. On our website, we have a whole list of strategies for boys and men to help them help us get somewhere just a little bit better. Um, and you can go there and find a lot of really helpful things. So to I go on on that same note, sorry, could I jump in here? Oh, yeah, go for, for it. Second? On that same note, one of the main things that we teach through Beauty Redefined is media literacy, which is the ability to critically understand and deconstruct media messages to know why they're engineered the way they are. And when we look at the status of women within media, we recognize that almost all of the images we see, whether it's in advertising or entertainment, whether it's directed to men or to women, those women's looks are really idealized. They fit a very particular type of beautiful. So when we teach media literacy, we ask people to really call those messages into question. We're so desensitized. We are so numb to the images of women's bodies that we see throughout all media that we take them for granted. And we need men just as much as women to question those images, to ask why they're engineered the way they are. And the answer really comes down to money. So many billions of dollars are made off of these ideals being unattainable for women, yet looking totally normal and attainable within media for both men and women. Men grow up in the same media world we do, seeing these images and believing that in order to be happy and to be successful and to really be attracted to a woman and get someone who's desirable, they've got to find someone who looks like those ideals we see in media, when in real life they're not attainable and they're driving huge profits for companies that sell makeup, weight loss, cosmetic surgery, everything you can think of to help women to feel better and to look better in that pursuit. We're talking with uh, the Kite Sisters, uh, like Lindsay and Lexi Kite, they're doctoral students at University of Utah. They uh, run a nonprofit organization called Beauty Redefined. They say our ideas about beauty need to be redefined. Their latest push is to uh, put the uh, the uh, affirming uh, message sticky notes on the uh, swimsuit edition of Sports Illustrated as a way to, to, to fight back. Uh, by the way, we have a couple of uh, pairs of tickets to Chanticleer. All you have to do is call in the number 1-800-826-1495. Ask for those tickets, one pair of tickets for tonight, another pair of tickets for for, uh, tomorrow night for Downtown Logan, great to men's singing group. 1-800-826-1495 is the number. Uh, Denny had another question. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about the the male um, 
blaming uh, the male on the negativity that we see, but what in your research have you seen on the other side about the female? Is there any blame to be put there? Oh, yeah. Um, well, we, we don't want to, you know, blame anybody in particular, because what we know is that um, this comes down to this culture that we live in and the billions and billions of dollars that are made in these industries. But one thing we do know is that women are often the perpetrators of these ideals. It isn't necessarily one thing that we definitely promote is it isn't necessarily men uh, pushing these ideals on women, but it is wishing women pushing these ideals on each other. So we study media that is aimed at women. A lot of people say, why the swimsuit issue? Why are you so focused on that? Well, the swimsuit issue, um, they've actually reported that at least half of their readers are women. Um, but we don't just target the swimsuit issue. A lot of my doctoral research that has won some cool awards is uh, on Victoria's Secret and how this is a $5 billion industry aimed at women for women. Um, their mission statement claims that they're there to empower women. They're not for men to look at. Um, and so we do a lot of research on women's media because we have to start with women. We push these ideals on ourselves. We raise the bar every time we do something to physically Photoshop ourselves out of reality when we buy into these issues. Then think of what we're doing for our daughters. Every time we need lash extensions, tanning, surgical augmentation, little girls growing up that can't just naturally achieve those ideals have to work even harder. And so we speak to women to get to the heart of this issue. And we'll have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we're out of time. The uh, The website is beautyredefined.net. A lot of good information there you can uh, find out about uh, this uh, organization, uh, Beauty Redefined, which uh, is attempting to uh, redefine the definition of beauty, especially in the media, which has a great effect on, on women. Uh, Lexi and Lindsay, Kai, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Danny Hayes, thanks. Thanks. Following a brief break, we'll be back with Ira Glass. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Logan Downtown Alliance and the Logan Film Festival, showcasing the 48, do 48 documentary, dramatic, and animated films from around the world. March 21st through 23rd, information is at loganfilmsfestival.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah, and uh, we turn next to uh, a conversation I had a couple of years ago. I was fortunate enough to uh, have a chance to talk by telephone with the host of This American Life. We got into the history of the program and uh, some other things with Ira Glass. Here's my conversation from then. Take us behind the scenes. I've heard that for This American Life, there are hours and hours and hours of interviews, and, uh, and then you, there's a lot of editing goes on. And also for us to find the kinds of stories that you hear on the show, usually you know, we'll run at 15 or 20 different stories and go into production on seven or eight of them, and, and, and only usually in the last week as the show is being put together. It, it takes us three or four months to put a show together where we finally decide, like, okay, these ones are kills and these ones are real, and, and, uh, and it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very labor-intensive uh, kind of thing. But obviously, you feel it is worth it. It's 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 like it's like to get because the the stories that we're doing, we you know we need people to be really great talkers, and we want the story to be emotional, and we want it to have plot twists, and we want it to be funny. Um, the, the only way to the only way to make that happen is to just start making the story and see if it works, and um, and so uh, and and so and so with that in mind, you know. Uh, 
you know, we just assume that a certain amount of stuff is just not going to work. And, and, and in a way, like, if you, th- if you think about, like, you know, like, you know, where do good ideas come from? Where, do, where, does, where does interesting stuff come from? Like, in a way, it's a relief to know that you can just solve the problem of it with brute force by just, <laughs> by just doing a volume of stuff, just, like, doing a huge number of things. Like, a certain percentage of them will, will come out to be special. <laughs> yeah, perhaps we could we could apply that to uh, other problems in life. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about what that would mean. So, so for example, I don't even know what <laughs> like, yes. like dating lots of women before choosing one to marry, for example. Yes, uh, but imagine some of the stuff that is cut falls to the floor, maybe a little painful to let go of. Yes, because well, some of it, some of it, you're really glad to see it go because it's been torturing you. In, in my experience, like most stories are trying to be mediocre, like most work of any kind is trying to be bad, and so you're trying to you know bring, bring make it really really good, and uh, and and when you let it go, it, it, usually it's a it's a huge relief. Um, but but occasionally there's something where where uh, where it has moments in it that are really good that you're sorry to see go. Do you have a favorite? piece of all time I don't have one like I have a bunch I have a bunch of ones it's funny because because at some point on our website we thought like well we've done so many shows we should give people like a little guide to like well you know if you're new to us like here's some good ones to start with and we started making a list of favorite shows and it was hard to keep it under like 50 shows um, but the ones that I the ones that are my favorites tend to be the ones that I think that that are that are listeners favorites um, the show that we did about the mortgage crisis the giant pool of money a show that we did when we went out on an aircraft carrier that was Flying missions over Afghanistan. Um, some of the special shows, like like when when um, when we did stories, all that our parents had pitched to us as a staff. The testosterone show when we when we did um, when we each got our testosterone tested and sort of bet on who would have the highest testosterone on the staff. Uh, I, one of my special favorites was the, uh, the the stories pitched by your parents. I, I love uh, getting the behind the scenes, and and uh, we all deal with those relationships, uh, I, I imagine you got a good reaction from that one. <laughs> well, I, I think I think the parents were glad. It, we were generally glad just to be included, yeah. 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 I, I mean, it's a little unfair because it's sort of like, you know, like, you know, if we had to do our parents' jobs, like, we, we would know how to do them. And so there's no reason why our parents would know, like, what, what would make for a good radio story. There's no reason why, you know, our parents w- wouldn't, wouldn't perceive that, like, to pitch it, that we should do a story about, like, the Erie Canal or... Um, or um, I remember my dad once pitched me a story. He, he, he said, you know, I was on the train and and I was talking to this guy. He, he was really interesting. You should you should uh, you, you know you should re- you do a story for in your show. And and I was like, oh, well, you know, like, what was it? He's like, he was in World War II. And I was like, yeah. Like that was the whole pitch. Like, oh, that was a it. random guy who was in World War II. My dad got no, nothing out of him. There was nothing beyond that. He was just a guy who was in World War II somewhere. <laughs> uh, how do the uh, ideas come to you? Could could I pitch an idea to you? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, it, 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 they come from a variety of sources, but one of the big ones is people email us, and and there's probably something on easily something on every other show, if not something on every show. That's just some random person who who emailed us with some idea. 
Um, and uh, and so, so a certain percentage come that way. And then once we have an idea for, like, one story that we like, then we make up a theme, and then we go looking for others. And at that point, you know, we do everything. We look around the Internet. We, we look in the backlog of stuff that we've got where we just, like, haven't been able to get certain stories on the air. We reach out to writers and around the country. We, we have an email list of about 1,000 people that we'll send, you know, you know we'll send uh, emails out to saying, like, you know, have you got anything that could go with this at all? Has anything ever happened to you? Have you ever heard of anything that could work with this? So... On this part of Access Utah, we're talking with Ira Glass, who, of course, is the creator and host of This American Life, which airs on Utah Public Radio at uh, 2 p.m. on Sundays. Grateful to have Ira Glass uh, for another uh, 15 minutes or so. Um, For people who are not familiar with This American Life, which uh, you're probably grateful is a dwindling number, uh, what is your one-sentence or one-paragraph description of the show? Um... It's funny, like, like, this has always been a huge problem uh, with our show because it sounds so different than other things on the radio. And so, and so to say, oh, well, it's like a, it's a documentary show, that, that seems like, oh, that's going to be really boring. Like, even to me, and I make documentaries for a living. And so, and so, uh, and so usually I'll say um, it's stories. People come in and tell us stories, funny things that happen to them, amazing things that happen to them, and, uh, and that its mission is to be more entertaining than most things on the radio. Hmm. Uh, what reaction do you get from people who discover the show? I'm, I'm guessing they. Well, I, truthfully, like, like, I, ha- I have to say, like, I just had the experience of having to explain the show. I was on a plane on Sunday morning, cu- coming, coming, uh, coming into New York City, and then sitting next to me was a teenager who obviously had never. I wasn't sure if you never been in a plane before, and was coming into New York, and and uh, was taking pictures out the window, and uh, and it turned out she. It was like it was like an amazing seen from a movie she had been in a mall in like suburban missouri out in the middle of like a little town and uh and she got spotted by a new york modeling agency and she was flying to new york city to 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 like with her like she was going to be doing photo shoots in new york and london and she had never been in new york she had never really been much out of missouri and uh and we were talking and, and i had to ex- and she's like well, what do you do and i explained tried to explain the show and i described it it was completely like a total like blank story. It made no sense to her at all. I thought I really have to work on this pitch. <laughs> she, she may not be tuning in. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I wonder. Um, speaking of younger people, I notice uh, I didn't know this before, but uh, reading some information uh, that most weeks, uh, according to your your uh, agency that books you. Uh, the uh, program is the most popular podcast in America. Yes, yeah, um, and um, and that's according to to the, basically if you look at iTunes, if you go to the iTunes store, they rate the <clears throat> the podcasts, um, you know, the, around the country, and and we are pretty consistently number one. And so what that means is about six hundred thousand, six hundred sixty thousand people download the podcast each week, and then uh, and then on the radio. Uh, there's another, I don't know, 1.7 million people listening. So we're all, everybody in media is wondering what the future is going to hold, from newspapers to television to radio. Where are people going to consume, consume that media? I wonder if you have uh, ideas. And uh, how do we, do we change anything to, to focus on the, the new way that uh, media be consumed? 
I mean, I don't, I, you know, I'm no, no expert on like the direction of the media. Like, like the one part of it that, that I know is just our little tiny corner of it. And, and, you know, one thing that's nice about any radio show is that, is that when radio is done well, it has a real intimacy to it. You know, a real feeling of like, okay, it's just one person talking to you who, you know, listening. And, um, and fortunately that matches exactly the aesthetics of the internet. Like, you know, the, the internet is very much a kind of like, you are talking to me, it's us one-on-one talking over these, you know, over the, over the computer. And, and, and so I feel like one of the reasons why our show actually has done so well um, on the internet is, be, is because it, it matches the feeling of, you know, blogs and Tumblr and, you know, just other things. There's a, there's a, there's a very conversational sort of, like, we're just here, let's just chat mm-hmm. kind of feeling to it. Speaking of that, of that conversational style, uh, I'm guessing you didn't set out to have an effect on style in public radio, but I believe you have. I don't know if you've reflected on that. Have any thoughts about that? Um, I, I just want to apologize to everyone for that, <laughs> for the increase in mumbling. That's, that's been the result of our show being out there for so many years. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't, I, it's funny, like, I don't hear that much of it. I don't hear us as much of an influence. Do you hear it? Do you, where do you hear it? Uh, well, just, uh, uh, it's, it may be on a less formality and more conversational. I would say it's not a bad thing, uh, yeah, but, but you, yeah. but you do see it out there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I guess that that's true. I, I kind of feel like all media is heading in that direction anyway, in part be, because of the internet, because because you know the way that we're consuming media. That's that's the chattiness that I think we all sort of expect from a voice coming at us. We don't want that kind of deep voiced, kind of old school voice of authority thing. It seems very old fashioned. So so I feel like we are but one of many forces driving things in that direction. Do you see an influence in uh, perhaps ambition and uh, and uh, things that some shows are trying to accomplish for you know Radio Lab? Others uh, others have made the connection back to uh, this American life. Um, I, I have, yeah. No, there's a, there's a bunch of shows that are clearly like people heard what we were doing and, and and then wanted to do something that that went further. And and Radio Lab in particular, I just think is the best thing on the radio. They they kick our asses routinely. It's just the the ambition of it, and and it's just a very fun show, but also. Um, uh, I don't know, just the, like the fact that you have like these two sort of friendly guys, you know, talking to each other, and that's the, that's the sort of basis that it's built around. So it's very, very chatty, but then the sound floats up around it, and the music that's underneath the stories is composed for it by, by one of the hosts, Chad, who, who trained as a composer at Oberlin. And, um, and, uh, and then just the stories they find are just amazing. Then the fact that, that they do a lot of science and really figure out these amazing ways to explain things like the science of random numbers or what happens inside your brain or, or new things that we've learned about what happens when we die. Um, you know, just, it's just it, the, 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 the sheer ambition of it is really, is really amazing. And then they, they really do a beautiful job. What do you listen to? What are, what are your, some of your favorites? I mean, I listen to Radio Lab. I listen to uh, On the Media each week. I listen to the Planet Money podcast. Um, and uh, beyond that, I listen to Mark Marin's podcast. Uh, I'm a big Fresh Air fan. Um, lately, I've been doing a thing where I've been obsessively going through old Garrison Keillor monologues. Um, and I, I've just gotten on a jag of listening to them and listening to how he tells them and structures them and, and going back to really uh, sort of very old ones, too. And, uh, and that's been kind of an interesting, an interesting study, like, like actually thinking about how he works and, and what he does. Um, 
and uh, and just the, the craft of it. Um, I had this experience that started a couple of weeks ago. I had this experience two weeks ago where I gave a talk, like the one I'm giving this coming weekend. I gave a talk on stage at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul where he does a Prairie Home Companion. And so it was his hometown crowd standing on the stage, standing on the spot where he gives his his news from like Wobegon. And, and just as a kind of experiment, um, you know, I, I was like, well, what is the structure of his stories? Like, are they really that different than our stories on our show? And on the plane there, I typed out one of his stories, you know, that I downloaded. And I was like, oh, this is exactly the same structure as what, what we do. It's just, it's just a radio story, really. And um, and then and then to show people how similar it is, I performed it on stage. <laughs> at the Fitzgerald Theater as part of my talk, and we, but 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 like me, not trying to sound like him, just trying to sound like me with the music that we use to score our stories underneath it. And um, I think for the audience, it was just like a really weird, like, wait, who's talking? Like, it just seemed like because it seemed exactly like our show, even though everyone knew it was his show. And um, and that just has put me on the jag of like going back and reading and listening to uh, his older his older work, and uh, and that's been really fun. What are then some of the the common, if not themes, then composition techniques that, that you found that you, you said there were commonalities between the way he worked and the way you work? Well, there's a thing that I think that works in a, in a story on the radio where, where you know, you want to keep the action going and you want to be very conscious of, of the feelings of all the characters and being sure you, like, you, you explain, like, what are people feeling at all the different points or, or doing things that gesture at what they're feeling. But, but, what, but he also will jump out of the action of the story just to make big general statements about these characters or life or what it means to get older or what it means to be seven years old or, you know what I mean? Like, like he leaps out of the stories to these bigger ideas. And, and that's something that's very much built into the structure that with which we tell stories on our show. Um, you know, we're very conscious of that just because it, it works on the radio. It's something that just feels good on the radio. And I was, I was interested actually, as I was typing out the story to be like, Oh, he really, really does this in kind of a regular rhythm throughout the stories. And, uh, and, and very consciously, I think, um, because it's so satisfying. On this part of Access Utah, we're talking with Ira Glass. Uh, you recognize his voice, of course, as uh, creator and host of This American Life, which you can hear on Sunday afternoons at 2 on Utah Public Radio. I was reminded, uh, coming into work today, listening to uh, Morning Edition, there was a, a report, I can't remember what it was now, is on um, an economic report. And I was uh, that reminded me of uh, the giant pool of money and the collaboration with uh, with Planet Money and the other reporting. Um, I wonder if you could take us back uh, to that. Of course, this was a, a time of economic upheaval, but uh, I think there there is a need out there for economic reporting which can actually explain things. I wonder if that was the impetus for a giant pool of money. It was. I mean, I mean, really, like the impetus was was one of our producers just noticing something that he didn't understand, and he would talk to experts, and nobody could explain it very well. And uh, and that was that. that this is this is back in two thousand eight. This is before the collapse of Lehman Brothers, before the the crash really happened. But but the the, the housing market was already starting to contract, and um, and what he noticed was was that that banks had started or had been for years lending money to people without doing the normal things that lenders had done since the beginning of capitalism um, to be sure that they get the money back. Like they, there was a very standard loan product called a no interest, no, no, um, and N-I-N-A, I can't remember what the last, no interest, no, um, I can't remember what the last one is, but basically it meant um, you could get a loan and they didn't check to see if you had a job. 
at all. They didn't check to see if you could pay it back, and you didn't have to put any money down. And um, and these Nina loans are just everywhere. So you could so you could get. And he started the, his show with this episode of the show with somebody who got a half million dollars in a house loan, whose income was really like thirty thousand a year in a bunch of part time jobs, kind of. And and Alex was just like, and no collateral, no in, no income, no asset loan. He had no collateral. And um, and Alex uh, Bloomberg, who was putting the show together, is just like, why in the world would a bank lend money to somebody like this? Like, what happened to banking that the normal rules of lending and capitalism just seemed to be completely off the rails? And the answer turned out to be that so much money, there was so much more money chasing investment in the world, that, it, that is, the amount of money going into investments had doubled, I think, in the, in the previous 12 years because of companies, because of countries getting richer, India and China and all these other countries getting richer. And just suddenly there's all this capital looking for an investment. And one investment that they had found was mortgages in, in the U.S., that there were these guys who would bundle together thousands of mortgages and then sell them as a security to people who are looking for a safe investment. And what had happened is this started as a very safe investment. They'd bundle together a thousand mortgages, and then you would, as an investor, you'd buy a piece of that pie. And then when people paid in their mortgage payment each month, you would get money. You'd get real money off that. Like that's a real cash flow, you know, that exists. And the demand for these became so great, and the people who were packaging them, you know, had such an incentive to create more that that they just started giving easier and easier loans with the thought of. Of you know we're just gonna we all we want to do is make these things that you could bundle together and and you know sell to investors around the country and around the globe, and 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 basically he takes us that that just led him to a series of questions and and led him to meet the people who were bundling together these mortgages at the banks and the mortgage companies and and at the Wall Street firms that were trading them and let him ask them like why did you think this would work you know like 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 what were you thinking when you accidentally destroyed the world economy and um, and. You you know, most of these people, you know, just felt like, you know, well, I'm just a cog in a machine. Like, I just work for a company. They told me to sell this stuff, and I'm going to sell this stuff, and everybody was doing it. I didn't think I was doing anything bad to anybody while simultaneously getting rich. And, um, and, and I, feel like, I feel like proceeding kind of from the dumb question is, is, where, is where I think the strength of that lied. I, th- I think that, that after that, like, I didn't know anything about the mortgage crisis. I feel like I was like a normal listener. I didn't know anything about these mortgage-backed securities or anything like that, um, and or these derivatives. And, and to be able to go in and explain it at length with real people, you know, um, I think gave, uh, the thing that was nice about it is that then after that, when I heard the news, I felt like I actually understood what was going on in the news. And 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 I think in the rush of daily journalism, um, it's it's hard it's hard sometimes to step back and and explain these things in the depth you need. Like like we felt like we really needed an hour to actually explain it. And you know, if you imagine, you know, how quickly things have to go on a daily news show, where you know, if you get six or seven minutes, um, it's a lot. So, so it's, it was nice to function as a kind of supplement to the, to you know, the, the news shows, which do a great job on public radio, you know, and, and my former employers for sure. Mm-hmm. All those news shows. Uh, and now we have Planet Money, Alex Bloomberg involved with that. Uh, do, do you think the the needle has been moved, so to speak, on economic reporting? I mean, on public radio, for sure. I mean, I mean, I, th- I think that they really set a set a standard. I mean, truthfully, like marketplace is always out there. 
you know, for the last 20 years doing very chatty, like easy to understand um, business reporting. Like, like I, yeah, I think Marketplace is a really beautifully edited show. Um, so, so, you know, what they're doing is, is in a way just kind of a continuation of that. But it's like they, they, they spend so much time on each of those stories, and, and they do spend so much time really trying to step back and explain and understand um, you know, I don't know if the needle has been moved, but it's just nice that they're out there. Mm-hmm. Are there, I just have a couple of minutes left, I, I wonder if there are any stories out there that you would really like to tell, but for whatever reason, uh, you haven't been able to, to tell them, uh, technical or haven't been able to get a hold of the person or, you know, that sort of thing, any any blocks there? One, yeah, there, there is one that, that, that truthfully, we've been talking about for six months, sort of on and off, and one of us will take a run at it and then just give up, and another one will take a run at it. And, and, I, th- and I feel like we want to do something on, on climate change. And it's not exactly – and I feel like the problem with it is it's hard to figure out what to do that will – that as soon as you hear the words climate change, you won't turn off the radio. I feel like everybody is sick of it. You know, like everybody knows where they stand. Um, and uh, and it's just a very odd kind of story because people feel alternately either hopeless about it or, if they don't believe it happens, really mad about it. And and figuring out a way in that would seem original and seem like it would actually contribute something, um, you know, it's just been very, very hard. And as somebody, you know, who believes the science, uh, which I do, um, you know, it, it it seems like a very urgent problem that we're not giving enough time to, but figuring out how to give time to it in our format seems like a really vexing kind of problem. Uh, and uh, just a couple more questions. One, um, maybe take you back to the beginning, the creation of the show, which might take us full circle around to how do you explain to people what the show is and, and uh, continuing mission of the show. Um, you... Uh, Held many jobs at, at NPR, right? Worked on nearly every NPR network news program. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I started there when I was 19 at NPR in Washington. And so I was a tape cutter, and I did the overnight. I wrote intros for Bob Edwards, uh, the old Morning Edition host. I was, a, I was a news writer for Carl Castle on Morning Edition. I was an All Things Considered staffer for years and years and years. I was a reporter and an editor. I filled in as host of Talk of the Nation for six months. Um, so, so, and I, so I filled in as host of Weekend All Things Considered. So, yeah, so I, I, I basically spent my entire 20s just kind of doing every job they had there. And uh, at a certain point, got an opportunity, or and you saw, I imagine you saw a need. You saw something out there you wanted to do that wasn't being done. Yes, and I, also, yeah, I, I thought that like, there's a kind of story that, that's on public radio, you know, once a day or once, once, once a day, where, where you just feel like, oh, you can't turn this one off, like this one's an amazing one, and uh, we just get totally caught up in it. And I was like, well, those stories are so fun to make and so fun to listen to. Like, what if you just basically ejected the idea of let's, let's do the news and just try to do a show just of those stories? Let's think about what makes for those stories um, and, just, and just make those. And, and honestly, like, I, was, I thought, like, I've got to get to this fast because somebody else is going to think of this. This is just too obvious an idea for somebody to do. Mm. And that, what, you pitched it to WBEZ? Is that how that happened? Well, no, WBEZ came to me, actually. Like, I, I had actually had this idea for a couple of years, and occasionally I would, you know, put it in, like, a grant application, and nobody was interested in funding it. And then BEZ, Tori Malatia, 
who we make fun of at the end of each broadcast, um, came to me, and uh, and they and and they had decided that they wanted to make a national program. And uh, and I was living in Chicago. There's just a couple of people who, who had sort of national programming experience, public radio, living in Chicago, and the three of us, four of us maybe. And so he came to me and just asked first, have you, have you got any ideas for a show? And I was like, yeah, I do have this idea. And he said, I think I can get together some money because the station wants to – WBEZ had made a calculation that that they saw, this is back in the 90s, before people were listening to radio over the Internet, they, they, they basically looked at what was happening in the media landscape and said, like, okay, people are going to be listening to radio over the Internet, people are going to be... Um, listening to radio by satellite, like, and and it's going to be harder for local stations to survive unless they make programming that can be distributed that way. Um, and so we want to be like a national program provider. And so we were their first experiment. And they did some others. And they did um and they did uh wait wait don't tell me very soon after. And uh, and uh, and you know I was just very lucky. I was very sort of like the very lucky. Um, beneficiary of some very good, thoughtful management on the part of their board. Uh, of course, program became a hit. Uh, 1.7 million listeners uh, each 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 week. Uh, I assume you f- still feel like you're you're accomplishing that mission you set out to do. I mean, on a good week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's weird. What's weird is that it still seems like a very hard job. Like I don't know why. Like it seems like well, after doing over 400 of them, you know what I mean? Like, after doing this for 15 years, or for, for how many years? Yeah, 15 years. Like, you would think it would sort of get easier, but I feel like we keep inventing new stuff to make that seems really hard. Do, do you get negative feedback? I don't know if that filters through. Oh, yeah. What What are the comments there? Well, what's interesting is, is, is we didn't in the first decade that we were on the air, but I think the politics of the country changed. And so if, if you say anything political in any direction, someone is mad and they will yell at you. And so we get we get a lot of that. Before then, I have to say before that changed, and, and this I think is true of all the national public radio shows, um, and before that, um, there, there was a period where we got, um, I feel like for the first decade that we were in the air, we got very nice, you know, emails and letters, and then the complaints were almost like comically, like what you would imagine the complaint to a public radio station would be, which would be there would be entirely about grammar, or you know, <laughs> or, or like very obscure movie references that we had accidentally like sort of left out the one, but you forgot Eric Romer's third film when you mentioned this, which didn't get distribution internationally, so a lot of people don't count it as one of his films. You know, there's like a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess you would get that in the, in the public radio world. Ira Glass has been our guest on this part of Access Utah, of course, uh, creator and host of uh, NPR's uh, This American Life. Um and uh, you can hear that uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sundays here in Utah Public Radio. Uh, and Ira Glass, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a conversation, obviously, with Ira Glass from a couple of years back. A great opportunity. Ira's about like you hoped he'd, he'd be very personable and uh, a fun interview. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we bring in now, before we close the program, Brian Earl, familiar voice to, uh, to UPR listeners on the occasion, coming up in about five minutes, of the premiere of uh, the gardening program, and it's new time. So, uh, welcome, Brian. Hi, Tom. How are you? Doing, doing well. Well, I'm excited. This will be uh, this will be fun. Of course, it used to be on Mondays um, uh, as a part of Access Utah. We decided uh, we wanted a more unified uh, 
voice for, for Access Utah. So I'm doing Mondays now, Monday through Thursdays. Uh, Sherry Quinn has Fridays with the science topics. But we still wanted to do gardening because it's a, a valuable resource, I think, for a lot of our listeners. So we're moving that to Thursdays at 10 o'clock. Uh, you've got, I think, one of your regular guests on coming up. Yeah, Diane will be in today. And then uh, I think you know Dan Drost won't be able to come in this month, but he'll be coming uh, a regular as he has been in the past. But we are still needing a, a name for the program, mm, and so right. we're we're collecting names from listeners. So you can uh, go to our website and email me if you'd like uh, to send your suggestions for the program. But we're getting some some good ones actually, and whoever. Ascends the winning entry will be able to join me in the studio as we broadcast the program live along with our guest. And then I'll also take you on a tour of the zebra gardens uh, over in Tremont. These are iris gardens, and they have um, a lot of different kinds of irises that are being grown over there. So it'd be kind of fun and different way for, for our listeners to become engaged in the program and, and give it a name. And, uh, of course, your name will be, you know, as long as the program lasts, your name will be there. So that's a great opportunity for you. Uh, Brian will be giving more information about that as we get started with the program at 10 o'clock, which, of course, is uh, just about five minutes away. Uh, Brian Earl with Diane Alston uh, with the premiere of the uh, gardening program with Brian Earl um, in its new time slot. So we'll be looking forward to that. Coming up in five minutes. Coming up in five minutes. I'm excited. Uh, get your phone calls ready, and of course, it's prime gardening season, isn't it? We're we're getting going. Yeah, I'm I'm already behind the curve on getting my celery planted indoors. So, yep, things are coming up. That is coming up uh, for uh, producers uh, Danny Hayes and Addison Pace. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Chamber Music Society of Logan, continuing their thirty second season with the La Catrina Quartet, playing a unique blend of Latin American and standard repertoire, including music of Haydn and Dvorak, tonight at 7.30 in USU's Performance Hall. Information is at cmslogan.org. Commentator Gina Wickwar. The day after Valentine's Day, a huge meteor streaked across the skies above the southern Ural region of Russia, exploding in a scene that resembled an end-of-the-world science fiction movie. Dash cam and video pictures of the event are abundant, as the meteor appeared during the morning hours when plenty of folks were up and about, driving to work, opening their businesses and factories, starting school. Over 1,500 people were injured, mainly by flying shards of glass from the thousands of windows and doorways shattered by the meteor's sonic boom. Many people reported that the meteor was brighter than the sun. In scientific terms, the meteor would be called a bolide, meaning an exceptionally bright meteor, one that explodes in the atmosphere and is often audible. I know how eerie this kind of event can be, for I once encountered a bolide. It was something I will never, ever forget. Both terrifying and mystical, it would have undoubtedly caused the same sense of awe and reverence in anyone else who saw it. It happened in the late 1990s when I was working for USU's Space Dynamics Laboratory. A team of us, preparing SDL's Wide Infrared Explorer, WIRE, satellite for launch, were based at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. We'd been there for weeks, slowly cooling the satellite's infrared instrumentation with hydrogen. This so WIRE could see slightly warmer objects, like galaxies, in the absolute zero cold of space. 
Our work schedule was 24-7, and one week I happened to be one of the several to win the graveyard shift. I dragged myself out of bed about 11 p.m., dressed, then jumped into my car for the 20-minute ride from our motel in Lompoc to the northwestern gate of Vandenberg. I was into the second or third night of my zero-dark-thirty shift, and everything was going fine, with Lompoc behind me, the Pacific Ocean on my left, and Vandenberg ahead. I drove through the deep darkness of a cold California night. I was just approaching the southwest gate when something extraordinary happened. A huge fireball, greenish in cast, whistled toward me, lighting up the fields around me with the whiteness of a hundred suns, turning the night into day. The fireball was streaking low on the western horizon, traveling at the speed of lightning. It disappeared in a moment, leaving me in the dark and wondering if I had imagined it. I came to a stop at the guardhouse, and a young airman stepped out. I rolled down the window. Did you see that? he asked in a frightened whisper. I nodded, equally shaken. I think it was a meteor, but a really big one. It was beautiful. He agreed. I'm glad you were here. I would have thought I dreamed it if you hadn't seen it, too. I agreed with him that nobody would have believed me either. We both shook our heads, overwhelmed. He checked my badge, waved me through the gate, and I drove on. When I got to work, I asked my colleagues if they had seen the meteor on the way in, but no one had. In fact, they looked at me a bit skeptically. I smiled, thinking of my co-conspirator, the gate guard. He knew, and I did, too. The next day's paper noted that a bolide of large proportions had streaked down the Pacific coast and had been sighted as far north as Oregon and as far south as Mexico. If it hit the earth, no one was aware of it. It had more likely exploded in the atmosphere, sending showers of debris into the sea. There were no reported injuries. This is Gina Whitmore. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Today marks the debut of a new gardening program on Utah Public Radio. We don't even have a name yet, but you can take care of that. Send your suggestions to me, Brian Earle, at upr.org. The submitter of the winning entry will be invited to join me in studio for a live broadcast of the program, along with a guided tour of the iris at Zebra Gardens in Tremonton. To start off our new program today, Diane Alston, USU Extension Entomologist, will join us for the hour. Up for discussion will be the ways that insects use adaptations to survive the winter. For instance, what kind of antifreeze is in their blood to withstand below zero temperatures? And is there really a use for earwigs and box elder bugs? Stay tuned for an informative hour with The Gardening Program, now each Thursday at 10 o'clock, right here on Utah Public Radio. But first, the news. <laughs> 